We began chapter 3 in 1 Peter last week, looking at these instructions that Peter has both for wives and for husbands. And I laid out for you three things uh, that I wanted to cover from this passage. And we covered the first of those three things last week, and that was the instructions to the wives. And so this week we're going to cover the second thing, the instructions to husbands, and the third thing, uh, a little broader look at what Peter's doing here given the context of Christians living as a minority amidst a hostile majority. Now, I want to read all seven verses again for context, but we will spend a good chunk of our time just in verse 7. Stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. By God's grace, may our hearts grant be granted the same uh, submissiveness, and reverence for the word that our physical postures are demonstrating now. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Verse 7, likewise, husbands... Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. May God bless the preaching of his inerrant, inspired, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray. God, grant your grace of understanding to all of us. Grant grace to me in proclaiming your word, in proclaiming your grace and your goodness, in pointing to Jesus in preparing us for living in the days ahead. Grant your grace, O God, we need it. We ask for it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. Mentioned to you last week that the wives get six verses and the husbands only got one, but it is a power-packed one verse. It is dense. And it starts with the same word the instructions to the wives started with, likewise. So husbands, in order to follow these instructions, it's going to be like something that's already come before. And if you remember from last week, we traced it back to two possible sources. Back to chapter 2, verse 18, in servants being subject to their masters with all respect. So one of the likewises would be that husbands, we're going to 
follow our command in the same way, with all respect. Now, I cannot remember if I mentioned to you back when we were talking about the servants that this word translated respect literally is the word fear, phobos, from where we get phobia. So literally, submit to your masters with all fear. Literally, submit to your husbands with all fear. Now, if that sounds a little odd to you, uh, submit with fear? Should I be afraid of my husband? Gosh, I hope not. But it might be helpful to think about the respect and the fear here, not just being directed toward the one that you're being subject to, but also being directed toward the one who has given the command in the first place. And husbands, for us, I think that's especially helpful We need to remember who is telling us to do what he's telling us to do. It's not just Peter. It's Almighty God through his messenger, Peter, that is giving these instructions. And we need a a healthy sense of fear in our hearts when it comes to heeding these instructions. These are important. They matter. And so that's the first way that I think the likewise works, what it points back to. But last week I also argued that likewise could point to back to a second place. And that's to the end of chapter 2. In these verses where we're told to follow the example that Jesus has left for us. What all of these people in the household are being called to. Servants, wives, husbands. It's difficult. It is not easy to do what we're being called to do. It doesn't come naturally. It involves sacrifice, even suffering. And we've got to remember, we must remember, that we're not being called to do anything. We're not being called to any level of sacrifice or suffering that will ever come close to comparing to what Jesus has already sacrificed and already suffered for you, for us. So husbands, with that in mind, with the likewise in mind, what are we called to do? Well, in the department of it should go without saying, husbands are called to live with their wives. Now, why would Peter need to say that? Shouldn't that go without saying? But isn't it often true that If something should go without saying, that's all the more reason that it needs to be said. We're remodeling one of our bathrooms at home. I finished the demolition of it last weekend while Shay and the children were out of town. And there's now a toilet sitting in our upstairs hallway. And so when they returned, I gathered the five children together And I said, this should go without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. Do not, under any circumstances, use the toilet that is in the upstairs hallway. That should go without saying. But I know my five well enough to know it needed to be said. Husbands should not have to be told to live with their wives. But guess what? Irreconcilable differences 
isn't something invented in our lifetimes. Falling out of love, finding someone new, those aren't unique to our day. Men, do not separate from your wives. Live with them. And that verb for live with is a comprehensive verb that includes all of the things normally associated with marriage. So it includes not just sharing the same house, but yes, sharing the same bed. Sexual intimacy is assumed and included in this verb as it pertains to marriage. Certainly that's something that should go without saying, which means to some it needs to be said. For a marriage to be healthy, for it to be flourishing, for it to be glorifying to God, husbands need to live with their wives. Maybe it should also go without saying what that living with them ought to look like, but Peter's not leaving anything to chance or to the imagination. He's got some very specific things that he spells out what that living with them should look like. First, he says, you've got to live with your wives in an understanding way. Now, what does that mean? It's a very specific phrase in Greek that the King James actually, if you've got King James in front of you, it nails the translation. Because literally it says, live with your wives according to knowledge. Live with your wives according to, well, what knowledge? Uh, Knowledge of what specifically, pray tell? All of it. Uh, live with them according to the truth about the way things are. And I think this could be another likewise kind of thing here too. Uh, Back in 2.19, the slaves were submitting to their unjust masters. Do you remember how they were supposed to do that? That difficult task? They were to do that being mindful of God. Husbands, how are you to live with your wives? By being mindful of God, according to the knowledge of who he is, what his will is, what pleases him, what he's called you to. Live with your wife according to the knowledge of who he is. How about live with your wife according to the knowledge of who she is? Who is this created in the image of God being that the Lord has brought to your side? Who is she? What are her hopes and her dreams? What are her fears? What makes her tick? What makes her ticked off? There's some intentionality here. And, And honestly, please don't amen. Honestly, it's something that I could do a lot better at. We've got to put some thought into this thing can't just la-ti-da-ti-da our way through marriage, fellas. Live with our wives according to knowledge, in an understanding way. And Peter helps us out quite a bit with some more things that help flesh this out. Part of that living in an understanding way, part of that living according to knowledge is showing honor. 
Which goes back to chapter 2, verse 17. We've already been told we need to show everyone honor, recognizing the, the dignity and worth and value that they have, how much more this gift of God's grace that he's brought to our side. And we're not showing honor because of anything that she does, and, and certainly not for anything that she does for us, but simply because of who she is as someone created in the image of God, an adopted daughter of the king, and as the gift of God that he's brought to your side, honor her. And do so mindful that she is like a weaker vessel. It says, as a weaker vessel. Uh-oh. Them's fighting words for some women. Who are you calling weak? I'd like to see a man try to deliver a baby. Well, Peter's not actually calling anyone weak, and certainly not women. He's making a general comparison. And generally speaking, in Peter's understanding, women are weaker than men. And specifically in this context, wives are weaker than their husbands. And so the big question to figure out is, in what way? How? Are they weaker? Now, some, have, some have suggested, well, well it's physically. Are, are women weaker than men physically? Well, yes, generally speaking, they are. With some notable exceptions, but anatomically, genetically, physiologically, there is a difference male and female. That's why in athletics, the males are supposed to compete against the males and the females against the females. Because there's an unfair advantage otherwise. But I'm not so sure that physical is what Peter's thinking about here. That doesn't seem to fit his context very well. The context for women that Peter's talking about, and we talked about it some last week, the context is the women are not being honored. They're not being treated with dignity and respect. Uh, Societal norms for the first century for women were harsh. They were demeaning and degrading. They had a much weaker position in society and in culture in almost every possible way. Socially, politically, economically. Every imaginable way, they were in a much weaker position. And to me, this fits a little bit better than thinking about physical strength. It fits better with what Peter is telling husbands to do in light of their weakness. He says, in light of their weakness, show them honor. They're not being honored. That's their weak position, so honor them. Which is really counterintuitive and certainly countercultural both then and now. What do we normally do when someone is weak? Do we honor them? Uh, No. Our culture very much shames the weak. Despises the weak. Blames the weak for their weakness. 
Well, it's the choices they've made. It's the lifestyle they've done. It's, it's their fault that they're weak. Think about how we treat drug addicts, homeless people. Sometimes when it comes to weakness, we reach some wrong conclusions. It would be easy in this passage about wives and husbands, especially when the concept of weakness is thrown in, to say, oh, well, that's why they're supposed to submit to their husbands, because they're weak. Husband strong, he lead. Wife weak, she submit. No. The weakness mentioned here is reason for honor, not reason for submission or subjection. Unless there be any doubt in your minds about this, look at what Peter adds next. Showing honor as the weaker vessel since. That's a connecting word. It shows a relationship. Showing honor as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you. Prepositions are small words, but they are important. Heirs with you. It doesn't say heirs through you. It doesn't say heirs after you. It doesn't say heirs in you. With. Puts the husband and wife on equal footing. Level ground, which is exactly what you find at the foot of the cross. The ground is level. The need is the same. There's not one cross of Christ for men and another for women. It's not men in the front of the line waiting for grace and women in the back. No, shoulder to shoulder, side by side, heirs together. Equal in need, equal in gracious provision. So whatever the weakness is about, whatever the subjection and the submission is about, it's got nothing to do with inferiority and superiority. And I hope that you didn't take away anything like that from what I said last week. I tried to speak very carefully, but there was only so much time to cover so much. Submission here has nothing to do with inferiority or superiority. And I thought a lot about this this week. And I got to thinking about the last time we talked about this. It's when we were, I think, when we were back in Genesis 3. The temptation and the fall that happened. And here's this big picture that we got to keep in mind. God has not designed this to work, and by this I'm talking about wives submitting to husbands, husbands being in positions of leadership and headship for their wives. He didn't design this for us to operate out of our normal positions of strength. He does not command husbands to lead because we're so good at leading. He does not command wives to follow because they're so good at following. In fact, isn't quite the opposite often true? 
And therein is the genius of God's design. Right? God's design is not for us to be able to say at the end of the day, well, I did a great job leading today. <laughs> but to say, oh Lord, how utterly dependent on you I am. How hard this is and how I need you. Please help me. When we were in Genesis 3, we saw this very thing play out in the garden. Adam should have led. He needed to lead. He needed to defend. He needed to protect. And instead, he was passive. He kept quiet. And that's the perennial struggle for husbands. Inaction. What about the struggle for wives? Seeing that passivity, being all too willing and capable of filling that leadership vacuum. Well, if he's not going to do anything, I guess I'll take matters into my own hands. And often with great ability. Because again, it is not, it is not because of a lack of ability to lead that God says, be subject to your husband and let him lead. That God commands subjection for wives, leadership for husbands. It's so that both husbands and wives will find themselves in places of weakness and dependence of having to constantly cry out to the Lord, I can't do this. Please help. Help me lead, Lord. I lack the confidence. I lack the knowledge. Help me wait on him and follow. I lack the patience. I fear what it's going to be like following him as he bumbles and stumbles along. Being in these places keeps our eyes exactly where he wants them. Not on ourselves. Not even ultimately on our spouses, but on him. So that he ultimately gets the glory. The, the, the constant crying out to God and depending on him brings him glory. And Peter even mentions this crying out in these instructions to husbands. Husbands, if you're not showing your wife honor, if you're not living in an understanding way, if you don't see her as your co-heir with you that she is, then you are hindering your ability to cry out to God for the help that you need. You see that? Live in an understanding way, showing honor, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Now, one way to read that is say, uh-oh, you mean, God's not going to answer my prayers if I'm not nice to my wife? Hmm? I don't think it's exactly like that. Because God's not petty like we are. He's not going to say, well, I'm not answering his prayers till he gets his act together. I think it's more a case of these prayers are going to go unanswered because they're not going to be prayed in the first place. Husbands, if you're not living with your wives in an understanding way, 
if you're not living with her according to the knowledge of who God is, of who she is, if you're not treating her honorably, if you don't see herself as her equal when it comes to the grace of Christ, are you really very likely to cry out to God for the help that you need? Or will you be content in your smug independence to just eh, keep on keeping on with your own strength, with your own ability? If prayer is anything, it's an admission of need. (laughs) Why else would we cry out to God? Because he can do something that we can't. Because we need him, because we depend on him to provide for what we lack. Now, with the little bit of time we've got remaining, I want to address this third idea that I've mentioned now several times. From this passage... And especially the broader passage that deals with households, right? With servants, with wives, with husbands. And really with the whole letter that Peter is writing. He's doing something, it's, it's a bit of a strategy, if you will, that's really important. And we would do well to emulate, considering this cultural moment we find ourselves in. And so my goal here is just to get you to think, to ponder a bit about what we've read so far in 1 Peter, and to keep that in mind for what we're going to read in the weeks to come. Now, I've told you all along the context here. Peter is writing to Christians who are struggling. They're in Asia Minor. They're very much a teeny tiny minority living amidst a hostile majority. And that's becoming increasingly more true of us, is it not? So think about his instruction to these believers. Number one, is he urging them to try to gain majority status and that will solve your problems? No, at least not what I've seen so far. Would he tell us today, scratch and claw and fight and try to hold on to your majority status as Christians in this country? Uh, I'm not so sure he would. I mean, think about it, y'all. Though that seems to be super-duper important for much of the so-called evangelical world. we got to hold our place. We're losing our position. I don't think Jesus ever envisioned his followers as the great majority with lots of political power. He said, broad is the path that leads to destruction and narrow is the gate that leads to life and few are going to go through it. Make sure you do. That's a rabbit trail for another time. The goal of Peter's instruction is for us, was for first century believers, to learn how to navigate these troubled waters in which we find ourselves and how to do so in a winsome way. No, literally, that we might win some along the way to the gospel, that we might live beautiful lives that would leave the pagans scratching their heads. Because they're going to want to say on one hand, ooh, I should really hate these people. I'm just repulsed by what they believe, right? It's so narrow. Jesus is the only way, right? I'm such a terrible sinner. I've got a problem that I can't fix all by myself. I really want to dislike them. But doggone it, they're some of the best people that I know. Nobody treats me with the honor and respect like they do. 
even though we disagree on so many things. I've never felt more loved or valued. I want to hate them, and, and I just can't. We need to leave them scratching their heads. If we live these beautiful lives, it will have this evangelistic impact. And so we need to do a bit of what Peter's doing here, of, of his approach for engaging the culture. He does not come out with guns a-blazing, this is wrong, and this is wrong, and evil, evil, evil. You're doing it all wrong. He, he is so much more careful and nuanced than that. He displays a lot of wisdom and discernment so that he doesn't have to be unnecessarily offensive. Again, the gospel is plenty offensive all by itself, right? We're telling people, you're so bad off, the eternal Son of God had to die for you because you got a problem you can't fix. That's a tough pill to swallow. That's the offense of the gospel. And so what Peter does here, one of the commentators gave it this label that I just loved, because this is exactly what he's doing. She called it differentiated acceptance and rejection. What in our culture can we affirm? What can we get behind? What can we celebrate? What can we be a part of, even if we disagree with folks in other areas? Now, so here's one quick example, and this just befuddles me. Care for our environment. Being good stewards of what God has provided for us. I see that so often getting chucked to the side and say, oh, if you've got any care for the environment, you're some raging liberal. Really? Why can we not embrace that? But see, my fear is if we disagree with folks in some areas, and we need to, we will, our tendency, our fleshly tendency is to seek to look for ways to disagree with them at every level. If they're wrong here, well, then they're probably wrong about all this other stuff too. You know, some things are legitimate non-starters for us. Some things we can never embrace, embrace, condone, support. We just can't. They're absolutely un- unbiblical. But that doesn't, that shouldn't eliminate the possibility of finding common ground in other areas. It doesn't eliminate the possibility or the command of showing honor to the people we disagree with. Maybe part of us showing honor is that we engage the people that we disagree with rather than instantly demonize or vilify. Can we find even a sliver of something that we can affirm? Where do we see the faintest glimmer of the image of God still in this person? And how can we affirm that and celebrate that? even if we disagree with much of what they think or believe or how they go about applying their beliefs. Now, this is hard work, right? It it is hard. It is messy. It would be much easier to just write people off, not show them honor, not seek to engage, not seek to live a beautiful life in their presence. But that's not what Peter's done. Think about what he's done specifically with households. We've seen this with these three groups of people that he's addressed. Servants, wives, 
Now, husbands, he's found what he can affirm, even if he disagrees deeply on some levels. I'm sure that he would have wanted all slaves and all servants in unjust situations to immediately go free. But instead, he subtly subverts the cultural institution. He knows the gospel's ultimately going to be the undoing of slavery for the Christians that are involved, because it's just incompatible. He takes the slaves being subject to masters. He takes women being subject to men. These things that are deeply ingrained in the culture. And he does two things at the same time. He upholds it on one hand, and he subverts it on the other. And it's pretty brilliant what he does. He says, yes, keep being subject. But it's not on account of the master. It's not on account of the husband. It's because you're following the example of your Lord and Savior who himself submitted and who himself said. It's very subtle, this shift. Your culture is doing this thing because it's pragmatic because it makes for just a good society. I'm going to tweak it a bit, right? And he does, right? He tweaks it. He, sa- he says it's wives to husbands, not all women to all men. He tweaks it a bit, and he gives it a theological foundation instead of a pragmatic foundation. Again, this isn't easy. This takes some thought and some effort. It's much easier to just reject everything from the culture and say, oh, it's all bad, 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 bad. Culture's bad. Or equally problematic on the other side would be just to blindly accept everything that comes from whatever Christian subculture or camp that we find ourselves in. Whatever talking head we listen to the most and follow, whatever... God, heaven forbid, whatever news channel we're listening to or political pundit that we're tuning into, well, if they said it, it must be true. right? We can't afford to do either of those things. Reject everything or blindly accept everything. We've got to be people of this book right here. That's what we're called to. This is the standard. This is the standard, obviously, for right and wrong. We get that. I don't think anybody here struggles with that. I think our struggle is forgetting that this is also the standard for how we treat people for whom this is not the standard. It's both. And we need wisdom and we need discernment so that we might engage those around us, that we might live beautiful lives that the Lord will use. He says he's going to use them. When, when husbands are honoring their wives and our pagan neighbors see it. When wives are submitting to their husbands and your pagan neighbors see it, they'll notice. And the Lord has said he will use it. He absolutely will. Let's pray that he does. Father, we are your minority people. And the path is broad that leads to destruction. Thank you for your intervening grace that plucked us out. That snatched us out of the pit. God, would you give us wisdom on how to live faithfully as your minority people? 
amidst people who don't know you yet, amidst people who you haven't snatched out of the pit yet. Lord, lead us to live beautiful lives, honoring our wives, submitting to our husbands, that'll be noticed, that'll point ultimately not to us, but to you. And that you'll use, you say you'll use it. We see the need desperately around us. Help us live beautiful lives that you will use to draw men and women to yourself. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.